0: shifting gears a little bit away from technology i'm going to talk a little bit about video in the classroom and um, by extension private study um it's been nice to watch the presentations um over the last two days um there's been a lot of historical context so i just wanted to mention that um in many of the disciplines that our group works with here at columbia video is a very common medium for teaching and learning and so what we're doing is really nothing new in many respects um in For example, our work with Teachers College, um, developmental psychology and, um, and teacher preparation are both areas where the benefits of video are, are nothing uh, too surprising or new, um, such as uh, stepping outside the moment that you're, that you're in when you're, you're delivering a lesson or, or talking to one of your students, um, having the opportunity to look at something repeatedly after it's happened. Um, or sharing some a, view, a viewing experience with somebody else, whether that's somebody who is your teacher or mentor or um, some of your peer group. Um, this goes uh, to what Murray was saying yesterday about a video being used as an instrument, something that could be used for illustration, uh, capable of frequent re- repetition, and making the inaccessible accessible, um, and something that really, from a cognitive perspective, helps against our... Um, inherent deficits of attention and judgment and memory. So, Just to give a little bit more historical perspective than that, um, Arnold Gassell, one of the founders really of, of child development, um, says that uh, you know he, he pioneered the use of video even in the 20s and 30s and he says that cinema registers the behavior events in such coherent, authentic and measurable detail. However, that doesn't mean that we necessarily get something out of it. What we need is to take advantage of that um, teachable moment, as uh, is the jargon in uh, the K through 12 arena. So, really, what you need is um, to really look for for detail. To what do you see in a video? How do you interpret it? And then, now that you've seen it and interpreted it, what do you do about it? Um, and these are questions that we ask when we look um, in, a, in a lot in the psychology and, and teacher preparation um, courses. So um, without further ado, I wanted to show Vital. This is Video Interactions for Teaching and Learning. It's a web environment that we first built in 2002. Um, before uh, web was qu- uh, video was quite as ubiquitous on the web as it is now. Um, but from the very beginning, it, 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 for us, it was something that, that got to a very granular level of analysis. We were working with a faculty client at Teachers College, Professor Herb Ginsberg, um, who's a developmental psychologist. And he had been teaching. That was him in the photo, by the way, uh, a couple of slides ago. Um, he's been using video for for decades now to teach his students to look closely to see what kids are really doing, and then make their their assessments based on the on the real, um, the real information coming at them. So, working with him, we digitized um, uh, a lot of his uh, archival footage, and then we put it in an environment where we encourage students to look closely. Um, here is uh, the syllabus of. His course, The Development of Mathematical Thinking, um, something that uh, it's a course he's offered for a very long time. It's offered every year at Teachers College. Um, And you go into a week of video and you see what you would see in a regular syllabus, except that it's full of um, videotape from classrooms, from interactions um, between adults and children. And you're given a topic, you're given a problem. What do these kids know about adding and subtracting numbers? So there's nothing more exciting than kids and mental arithmetic. So I'm going to go to a video, wait a while for it to load. I should say that, that a lot of the work done on this environment is the result of a grant that we received from NSA, what if I say- partly to develop this web environment um, for use outside of Columbia, but also to shoot a lot of this new video that you're going to see in a second.
1: What if I say to you,
2: yeah.
1: how much is five and three? Five and three. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. What do you think?
1: Mm. No. No?
3: Okay.
1: What if I say to you, how much, that's like a first
4: grade problem, you know? That's a big one. Mm. What if I ask you, how much is three and one? Three and one, mm-hmm. four. How did you know? I just know it. Okay. Cause watch this. Three, and I add one more. It's four.
1: Oh. Okay. But it rhymes. Rhymes? I oh, add one more. Now it's four. You're a poet too.
0: Okay. Does anyone know how he got that answer? He just okay. knew it. How did he know? Um, well, so, so basically, if you're a teacher watching this kid, you're going to be looking for more than that. This, this, is, a, this is a particularly precocious child. Um, he's six years old. He's in kindergarten. Um, but the, the idea here is, is to learn how to elicit information from kids who are not necessarily used to verbalizing um, the way they think about math, for example, or anything. Um, so uh, in a situation like this, you might be watching... The child for detail about how he uses language and his fingers and does he count, you know, what is his mouth moving and so forth. You might also be looking at the adult researcher who's using questions in a in a in a very specific way in order to get information without leading the child or putting words in in his or her mouth and so forth. Now, in this interface here, you'll see that this video popped up in a in a video viewer with tools. So I'm by using um, start and end button. Five
5: and three. Five and
0: three. Okay, just for sake of illustration, asking the question, I'll give my clip a title, notes about it, and then save. And so, similar to some of the other software we've looked at today, You're able to mark in and out points for your video, describe it in your own words in some way, which is already some sort of semantic retelling of of information that happened in the video. It's stored up on the right-hand side of that screen, and so on. So you can continue to do this over and over again for as long as you like in in a particular video, or close and move on to another one. So um, once that's done, then you move on to the the assignment phase where the instructor has posed a question to you, what do these kids know about adding and subtracting numbers? Compare and contrast what you see in the, in the assigned videos. So over on the, the right side of the screen here, I have an essay space. Uh, I've begun to type an answer. Young children, um, for young children, addition is an extension of counting objects. So they build their strategies for addition, addition and subtraction based on counting. Now, I have on the left side here, made some clips that I've seen in those videos. I use... Um, I use these little film icons here to then embed the media directly into my essay. So now I'm basically this is my work as a student. I'm I'm building an essay. I'm responding to a question that's been posed to me, and then I'm using the evidence that I've found in visual media. And I'm not re-describing it necessarily in text. I have I've moved on from that, and I can now then move directly to analysis and justify what I think, my own theory. Um, Now. When the, the fact, you finish this, you submit, it goes um, um, becomes public for you, you, the uh, faculty member, for other students in the course. And then they can see side by side with what you've written.
1: One, two, three, four, and what about the other ones?
0: One, two, three,
4: four, five. Five, you sure?
0: Yeah.
4: Let's see, here are the two bears.
0: And so on. So just here, uh, back to the slide. This is a sequence of steps that we think are important. Observe, meaning you're seeing a, a particular instance of something happening. You're, you're thinking about um, how, it, how it relates to something you may have read for the course, what you, you might have read something about counting and how that leads to addition and subtraction. Uh, <clears throat> and you're resolving those two different sources of information in your mind. You're interpreting. Then in the, in the, in the note space, you're, you're contributing your own um, ideas about what you saw and then adding it to an an argument that you've constructed. That's the think stage, sorry. Um, You might alter an alternative hypothesis. You know, you don't necessarily know all the answers, but based on what you've seen, you can make an educated guess and offer something reasonable as well as alternatives if you knew more. Um, And transfer. So this this is an environment that's meant to slow down time so that you can watch the video. And then when you go to a real classroom again, you might see more when you, when you uh, are interacting with a, a kid. Or you might ask your questions a little bit differently because you know that um, by saying things a, a certain way, the kid's just going to take your answer for granted and not give you the information you want. And then revise. So you, you've, revi- you've re- revised your practice. You've gotten feedback on what you've written from your, your peers or, or maybe the faculty member. And repeat. <clears throat> okay. So I think that's all I'm going to say about this. And now I'm going to show you another instance. Uh, John Frankfurt, my colleague... Uh, Uh, The silence in the course.
5: Okay, uh, so at the center, it became uh, clear to us as we continued to work on Vital that this idea of uh, visual quotations, video quotations embedded in essays. following the same rules as one might use a quote from a journal or a book, had uh, a lot of possibilities in terms of scaling this into other disciplines. And we've done work on that. Uh, I've done it in my own teaching, but I've also done it in my my job at the center working with faculty to integrate these tools purposefully for curricular goals. So for instance, about two years ago we worked with Mark Franco, visiting professor in his History of Modern Dance course and there are a lot of interesting opportunities there. Also, we did uh, an experimental uh, test case with John Sved in a jazz course as well. And those are just some examples in the arts, uh, the humanities. There are other uh, examples as well in different disciplines which Michael might talk about a little bit more. This is, this is the implementation of vital in my silent cinema course that I taught this past fall semester. And It offered really great opportunities in terms of giving students a large number of clips across a range of national cinemas, different types of directors, and really asking them to look very closely at these clips and choose particular moments, reflect on them, and then embed them into their uh, essay that I assigned to them. So here in this assignment, I assigned them uh, various national cinemas in the 1920s from France, Germany, and the then Soviet Union, and I'll, and I'll give you a demonstration of how this looks now uh, different from the Herb Ginsburg course, where instead of having children counting, you have film clips. So I open up here the clip, and this is from Abel Gans' La Rue. And as you're watching it, you could find that particular moment which is important to you. And I'll wait here, and I set my start point. And then here, this close up I think is interesting. Uh, French impressionist use of cinematography filter. And so I've made my selection. And then it becomes even more interesting because I've made that choice, but then I also uh, continue in terms of giving it some sort of title. In this case, this will be my demo title, but uh, demo. But then there's also notes. So there's some creation of metadata going on here. This clip is important. That's all I'm going to say, Uh, as well as the capacity to tag this clip and organize it. And that becomes important because you can imagine in the construction of these essays, students are grabbing many, many clips, and and they're creating a repository for their essays. So the tagging capacity, whether you want to tag it by the national cinema, by the director, by the movement, by the film style, all of that becomes uh, very interesting. So I've made my uh, clip selection. I've given it a title. I've added some notation. And then I can save it. Then once I go into, just like Michael showed you before, into the assignment itself, I would find that clip ready. I could open it. I could review it again, and I could adjust it and change it if I wanted to. And here, I'm not writing the essay myself. My students have to do this assignment. Uh, Notice uh, in this paper, then I'd be writing, continue to write. And then at the moment, I want to add that clip. I go to the icon here, add to essay, it's added in there, and then, as Michael showed you, in reading the essay, you can click on that and see how the clip illustrates the point. And the the final papers, which I can't show because I'm uh, in Michael's login, look like final papers, and these are written text, but they're illustrated with the various clips. And what becomes very interesting, is it's not for me as an instructor, is watching the clips, but also reading what leads up to those clips, what do the students say, and then what, uh, what follows it as well. So that's just uh, another example of another curricular implementation using this tool, taking clips, using them as quotations, and embedding them in the essay. So Michael's now going to continue. Okay. So...
0: Um, uh, John mentioned that this is a um, there's a school of the arts instance of this. We also are using this extensively at the school of social work here, which uh, trains more than two hundred um, future therapists of New York City um, every semester using our tool as well. Um, a very interesting, you know, we we developed this really before Web 2.0, and before people really thought that they could quickly uh, generate their own video and add it to environments like this. And so we're really trying to catch up in that regard. Um, so, and. In some ways, it felt like we were anticipating this moment, Um, but what I would like to show next is a course uh, that was offered uh, this past year at Barnard College, where they have an undergraduate program in education, and the student teachers in that program uh, in this particular course were given a very thorough rubric, um, which I've uh, listed here on the left side of the page, for examining one of their own lessons, so 40 minutes in the classroom with a bunch of kids in front of you, uh, looking back at yourself. And then here's um, one student's essay. She took this video herself. They would either pair up and use video cameras that they borrowed from their program or the library, or many of them just have handheld devices of various kinds that they do this with, as you would imagine. Um, The quality can vary. Um, That's a problem that we'll have to work with in terms of light and sound and stuff. But ultimately the content is very good because it's very real and very current. Um, this student wrote um, her essay about a history, uh, government, and social justice What It means to relate your
3: home to government.
5: Eric. Hold on. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: Now we need From to a listen to Eric's questions. We need to listen to Eric's questions. We need to listen to Eric's questions. We well, she used questions
5: to get information from her students. So I
3: understand that. No, I mean, I'm better at writing essays than writing poetry, too, right? But this is part of the ways that we can develop our writing to do different things, right? And so we're, we're going to have to challenge ourselves to sort of be creative in this way, okay? Don't stress out about it, Eric. You'll
0: do fine, I'm sure. Sorry. Uh, at the beginning of the lesson, um, and like John said, that these are these are these are very much like final essays that you would see in any course. They're extensive. Um, this one is highly reflective um, and she's able to cite from the full uh, length of her lesson and later get feedback, um, which I cannot see, um, unfortunately. But but her faculty member then contributes in a space below this um, some feedback. Um, so I think in the future, we're, we're actually thinking about how we're going to develop this in the future. Um, better use of user contributions, better search, better metadata, um, more affinity groups that are not course-by-course silos, but um, the ability to share video from different uh, places, to grab video that already lives on the web in other places and so forth, Um, and also doing this more as a direct service possibly in schools and districts rather than just at the university level as our, um, our current grant specifies
4: i just like to add before you clap for these guys that uh, the gold ring in teacher training has always been the able to use video that you then are able to process and critique with students in a group so that they begin to develop just the way you try to develop in a writer a self-critical capacity. And this is a huge step in, in the direction to be able to do that in a really broad-based way. And we have partnerships with Hunter College where they're experimenting with this and we're going to extend our experiment into other parts of the university. And, uh, And even in the context of teacher preparation, teacher preparation was always done either in the field where people had many experiences before they went out to do teacher training or in the abstract environment of the classroom. Well, what this does is it allows for a level of assimilitude even in the Classes that precede student teaching by repurposing a lot of the video that students have captured of themselves, and uh, in a sense provided critiques and, and a legacy to the next generation of teachers who would be part of that same program. So that's in a sense the uh, an additional part of its undergirding uh, philosophy and direction.
1: just want to say in starting out this uh, next presentation as Mike fires things up, um, on the front table I have a a handout with all the information about the tool we're going to show as well as more information about us. So I'm going to try to keep it to the 10-15 minutes that was allotted to us because it is lunchtime and you're all looking a bit angry. And uh, so I'll try to keep it short. I also had this horrible flashback um, as I was walking up here he said, I'm going to start, the, I'm going to start this slideshow and then not say anything. And it was actually a wonderful slideshow and a great presentation. But Mike and I were at a conference a while ago, and the person before us started a video and then didn't say anything. And ten minutes into the video, half the audience got up and walked out, and the rest of the audience was talking among themselves, which just goes to prove what most of this conference has been saying in the wonderful presentation before us. It's not the video – But what you do with it. And that's really what we're going to talk about right now. You're not going to press the button for me? Do you want me to? Yeah, can you press the button for me? No. (laughs) Anyways, um, I'm Dean Rabiger. This is Mike Fagan. We're from Matrix, we're a humanities computing center and social science center. Actually, we're in the social sciences now, we have moved over. Um, At Michigan State University, Um, we do lots of different kinds of things. Um, For the most part, um, we've been focusing on developing digital libraries. we got lots of stuff online. Um, we got some real nifty stuff coming up. We put on about 800 hours of Studs Terkel audio. We have a lot of video coming up. Um, we did the American Black Journal, which started in 1968 as the colored people's time with the joint public television. We're putting all the interviews on since 1968. Um, we have about 60 of them on, up online now, and they go from Desmond Tutu to... Jesse Jackson to um, Bobby Seale, some really interesting interviews. And we have a real nice oral history collection that focuses on um, the fight against apartheid in South Africa, as well as many other collections. But we did that for a long time, and then we found out something tragic, is that students aren't really using digital libraries very much. um, And they're not using them very successfully, especially the media, um, the audio and the video. And teachers wouldn't use it very much. Um, So that's really what we've been focusing on lately is how can we be more effective in the um, use of of the media because we really, uh, like everyone here, believe in access um, and we want to give people access. But access, as I said at the beginning, really doesn't come without the ability to use it and reuse it in new and different ways. The obstacles, of course, are, are, are pretty familiar to all of you. Um, for the most part, um, people have a real difficult time searching. A lot of the digital library interfaces are just terrible. American memory is just a nightmare uh, if you want to try to use it. Um, so what we're really focused on is, is the development of secondary repositories as people use the materials. You're going to gather up metadata by, by their very use, user-generated de- metadata. And uh, the other obstacle, of course, is um, how do you deal with the uh, streaming media? Um, We know how to deal with text. We've been dealing with text for a long time. Academics are really good at quoting things and things like that. Um, And so we've really kind of built a tool that very much follows um, on the tool that you just saw, uh, ways for people to create annotations and segments out of larger streams that are online and then use them. We're archive and, and website independent. You can use it anywhere, as I said. You can sign up for an account now and start using it. Um, and you can use it on just about any site you want. Matter of fact, one of the things we really encourage with students is to use it for their own personal stuff. We know that if students use application for personal use, they'll tend to use for academic use more. You do not want to see what they collect in terms of media for personal use, but that's another story. Anyways, with that, am I to your slide yet? Oh yeah, we're to your slide.
2: Mike will go now. Did you just criticize Library of Congress? I criticized the okay, library. I want to distance myself from you. Um, no, no, they're a wonderful place and we love them. Library
4: Congress is great. Oh, we're just kidding. This is great. It's like the car show. Right.
2: <laughs> so, um, to enable users to better use <laughs> online media, we created an application called Media Matrix. And as Dean said, Media Matrix allows you to segment and annotate live uh, media that you find online. It's an archive independent tool, which means you can use it with virtually all media that you find on a website. Um, you can organize your media on a personal workspace, and then you can c- combine that media into online presentations. So I think the the best way to take a look at this is to actually run through a demo. Okay, oh good, I'm logged in. So uh, Media Matrix is free to use. All you have to do is create an account. And once you create an account, you can go to your portal page. And there's two ways to uh, load the Media Matrix tools. One is through a series of bookmarks, which simply appear... Um, in your bookmark uh, folder. The other way is an installer, and Media Matrix is fully supported on Firefox uh, on both platforms and uh, Internet Explorer. And what that does is it adds options to your contextual menu, okay? So once you actually install the tools, you're ready to head out onto the internet and start gathering stuff and annotating. And so let's start small and let's <coughs> grab an image. So Once you come to a website and find an object that you want, um, you deploy the appropriate media matrix tool. And so um, you can do one of two things. You can click on the page and say, I want to find an image on this page. And what this does is it goes through, it parses through the page, and generates a preview, and finds the images so that you can select one to load into the media matrix editor. But as a page like this, it's got a ton of stuff on it. So, you can also just right click on an object and just go to add to media matrix and what this does is it loads the object into the editor and once the object's into the editor, you can uh, work with it and so with images, you can increase and decrease the size of it and you can also segment it for images that just means creating a virtual crop and so I drew this box around a portion of the image and I can preview it and so that generates on the fly a preview of the crop and then once you have the digital object modified you can again give it a title
4: (laughs) it's always the
2: toughest thing to come up with a title Um, and. Add your annotation. And what you can do is you can organize your stuff in the folders. And um, if you, one of the options is we have a citation layer, and we can quickly look at that. The citation layer, what, before you go to the citation layer, you can add additional metadata to any object. So you can create metadata skins to describe objects that make sense to you. And so I just have an example here. If I wanted to, I could apply some Dublin core fields to the actual information that I'm staving, uh, storing for this object. Um, But once you've actually finished the object, it takes you to the citation layer. And what the citation layer is, it's a series of questions to get undergrads to think about why they're collecting this resource and how they're going to use it in their paper.
1: Yeah, in fact, one of the main things that we developed the tool for was research to find out how people actually use and think about uh, resources they find online. Um, And that's been our primary, primary
2: mission. So once you've collected your resource, and I'm a bad student, I didn't fill up the citation layer, you can go to your tree. Um, and on your tree, it, it has all the things that you collect. So if we open this up, it again, it generates a preview. And what it does is it, it again, uh, writes, we digital archive, copyright is very important. And let me say before you get out the clubs and the pitchforks and the torches, we're, we're not actually downloading any of the media that we use with Media Matrix. It simply stores a URL back to the object and the parameters for segmenting it. And so basically it's a big text database. Um, The the digital media stays on the server that it's located on and we simply access it when the user accesses it um, where it sits.
1: A lot of bloggers actually use this because what you can do is generate the HTML that you can just plug (coughs) into your blog and get the same kind of cropping or the same kind of segmentation of the media as well.
2: So, once it's on your media tree, you can, again, you can load it back into the editor, um, you can uh, revise it, and you have the other options you usually have in a workspace. You can edit, delete, you can move around into folders, that type of thing. Okay? So our director says we have to be more of a corporate shill. So for audio and video, um, Dean mentioned the American Black Journal.
1: It's going to be a fine site. We're going to be releasing it in about two weeks. Uh, We're just doing some finishing on it. And we have the rights to use everything, too.
2: We don't have the rights to check public television. Detroit Public Television.
1: We just simply put it online.
2: (laughs) Uh, That's a good question. Um, We do have, uh, well, you can tell about the link checker. When you access your tree, it basically goes through and checks each link. If the link is broken, it notifies you that this link is broken. We also store the... not only to the URL to the object, the URL you got the, page, got the object from uh, the page, and so you can go back to the page where you found it and sort of search around. But um, We also
1: try to strongly suggest uh, uh, archives and stable URIs, and we try to promote that in everything we do uh, to develop
2: it's stability. The um, so this is the American Black Journal, and for video, um, again, you can go to a page that has a video clip,
0: and you can see local broadcast of Detroit Black Journal is made possible in part by a grant from the men and women. This is streaming a
2: 28-minute uh, clip. All, uh, I think all the shows were a half hour, approximately, in line. Hello, so, Detroit um, Black Journal, you're the on the air.
1: Screen,
2: Hello, I'm a university. Like like again, I'll go I heard video. It automatically locates the video on the page and loads it into the editor. Um, Local
0: broadcast of Detroit Black so, Journal Passage is made streaming. possible in part what by a grant from the men and women of Mishkan.
2: And end segment. Ooh, and with our new
1: version, we have a little slider.
2: Are you done? Yes. Um, so... we <laughs> oh, yeah. We always throw in a little shtick. Um... When you, uh, when you hit start segment and end segment, what you can do is you can preview the actual segment. And here you can see instead of the 28-minute clip, what it does is just plays the three seconds that I recorded. So again, um, we're not actually downloading or making a derivative copy of the digital object. We're simply storing those two parameters as well as the URI back to the video. Which is really cool because
1: one of the things we do, we have another application that we are releasing open source called Project Builder with a repository software. And it allows us actually to just, instead of creating lots of derivatives of things, we can actually just um, have our experts actually create segments for us, put them into the database and we can store them as objects that we can use for web presentations. This is
2: especially really important. We have a overcoming apartheid (laughs) site uh, dealing with South African history. And so we can have scholars from all over the world log into the digital repository and build context around these. Actually, create the clips as well as the context around the clips, without having to have any technical knowledge whatsoever. You got two minutes. Oh. Okay. So, video file. know. And let's go to my portal. So, you go from site to site and collect the digital media that you want, segment and annotate. And what you can do is, um, you create a presentation out of the things you collect. And so this is not unlike a word processor. Um, You can type in some words. I can't be pithy with time
0: constraints.
2: So any place in the actual presentation, what you can do is you can hit one of these and add appropriate, it it goes to your tree and finds everything that you've collected. And you can select what you want to insert and you can add it to a presentation. So let's just uh, add a video, we only have one there. Okay, so once you're done, you can go ahead and hit, um, you can, if you're part of a group, you can create groups for classes, you can hand things in directly to your instructor who's the administrator of the group, but we're just gonna add it. And what this creates is a, a web page with a, again, a solid URL, and it embeds your stuff, and you can, again, click on your stuff, and it'll recreate the segment. You can see this is going to play the three seconds. Um, it, it also displays the citation information for the student, and so the instructors really like it because you know when they get a research paper, um, Dean and I both teach humanities. You know, you only have the quote there. If you want to check the quote, you got to go look up the book and things like this. Here an instructor can see what the student was thinking when they actually collected the resource. They can actually view the clip as well as go back to the site and see what site they got it from and if they're using it within the right context.
1: You can also collect audio, bookmarks, type of directly texting on the page, um text. Um, We're currently, as I said, we're currently going open source with one of our projects this summer, and then the next one we're going to try to go open source with this one. It just takes time for us to, you know, make a package for people to download. But, yes, we want to make it free and open for educational use. As I said, you can use it off our server right now. Um, Anytime there's lots of people. We have people at Texas State University actually using it for teacher education where they uh, have long videos of teachers teaching in the classroom, and the teachers can pick out segments that work and don't work. We have being used at Tufts University and, and several other places actually around the world, so. Do you use certain places on that? What? Because you're storing the Yeah, right. Yeah, storing text.
2: It's really <coughs> scalable, and for us it's the university bureaucracy of getting the okay to actually release it, so we're hoping soon. Okay. So. But what it does mean is that
5: if, you, if a student is handing in a paper with a, a quote, the quotes
3: can only be quotes uh, that they
2: can find on the internet. No, they can actually type textual quotes in. Oh,
3: Right, yeah, just
2: like so a regular
1: paper. To, okay mm-hmm.
3: so don't have both, both
1: right. Well. Yeah, part and of the you problem... click
3: onto the quote and the other, you have the quote.
1: Yeah. So yeah. Part bizarre of,
3: in terms of how it looks, but...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have a whole new, We have several new presentation layers we're, we're building. Um, you know, the whole thing that we're dealing with is the fact that there's lots of editors out there. If you have the video and it's becoming easier and easier, you can edit it. Um, but there's very few things that actually deal with the things that come out of digital libraries that are streaming online. But there's more and more that available for use, and that's what we're really trying to work with.
2: So we support the big three, Wave, MP3, and MPEG-4, we're almost to Flash. I I would say within a month we're going to have Flash. Um, We can work with Flash on our server, it's more difficult to work with Flash, it's located on other servers, but uh, we've had successful tests, but uh, the Flash player slightly changed, so we want to make sure we're compatible with all players. Um, Again, this is being used for a number of different instances. Um, It's nice that our uh, director is also the chair of history, uh, so we get lots of classrooms to work in, as well as uh, all their virtual courses are using it as well. Um, Again, we're interested as a repository with secondary repositories, and what that is is a big pot of user-generated metadata where they're commenting and creating context on digital objects that are located elsewhere. And so this not only provides finding aids, but I'm, I'm talking really um, you can
1: find it online. It's really exciting. Try it out. There's a video he made. He stars in that you can actually hear too. So, <laughs> so, I didn't appear in it at all.
2: That was, that was by design. Thank you.
1: Can
3: you all hear me? I always thought the worst time to present. Was after lunch, but now I know it's right before lunch when lunch is already late.
4: Especially for the presenter.
3: (laughs) I promise not to fall down. I don't need audio. Um, So I'm Judy Stern. I'm from UC Berkeley and Educational Technology Services. Um, Ben talked a little bit about our organization yesterday. I am going to um, do a couple of things here. I'm going to kind of tell a short story about what we've been doing in terms of teaching and learning using video at Berkeley, specifically from the perspective (coughs) of our organization and kind of the organizations that fed into it. Um, And then I'm going to kind of list out some of the tensions we've been experiencing. (coughs) I hope that we would have time to discuss them, but I think probably that's going to have to happen offline. (coughs) Um, So the story has a couple of plot lines or threads. Um, The first thread is the instructional technology thread. Um, Throughout the 90s and kind of into this decade, we um, had an an instructional technology program. Um, Primarily what we were doing, particularly in the case of video was providing training and consulting. So we didn't have big production um, services. We didn't really even have small production services. Um, The context at the time, you probably all remember, it was a time when they were easy to use media authoring tools. HyperCard had been introduced in the late 80s, QuickTime in the early 90s. Um, Our goal, roughly speaking, was to help instructors use technologies in ways that encourage active learning. Um, The outcomes that came um, that that came out of this were um, a bunch of multimedia projects for the most part CD-ROM-based in the early 90s, web-based um, as we got to the later 90s. Um, and, of course, you know, one thing that we were able to do was provide greater access to video um, for the students in ways that they couldn't have access before. Um, we were able to introduce some degree of interaction to make it um, a little bit more interactive. And there were some small examples of student-created media which is you know where I think a lot of the power lies, but um, those were minimal. I think the challenges we were facing at the time and actually still face are the technology costs and by that I mean not only I mean in the early '90s, a digitizing board was um, you know $1,000 dollars or more, but also the time in terms of how much time it was going to take an instructor to invest in this stuff, to learn it, to remember it, you know, when they didn't come back to it for a few months. Um, as well, as I already mentioned, we didn't have the capability, the resources to provide services to really um, help them create the media. Um, so we were spending, in a, in a sense, more more of our effort on technology than we were on pedagogy. And the other big challenge was a lack of scalability. So um, a lot of these projects were considered boutique projects. Um, <coughs> here's just i um, you – know, I'm going to skip over this. This was a um, – Profile of one of the instructors, um, and it's just an exemplar of kind of the kind of work we were doing. Um, you know, the big issues were um, the cultural immersion that she felt that she could get from the video. Um, she did most of the work. Um, she took classes. Um, we provided um, guidance along the way, and that was was common in a lot of projects. Um, this is an example from um, an educational research project. Um, This was probably mid-90s, nothing beautiful, but, um, you know, URL flipping going on, um, interactive video where you could click and um, change where you were, um, captions, so we were trying to introduce um, ways to make the experience more active for students. The second thread that comes in is that um, in the second half of the 90s, there was an engineering research project, Ben mentioned it yesterday, coming out of the Berkeley Multimedia Research Center. Um, That was BIBS, uh, the Berkeley Internet Broadcasting System. Context here was um, real video coming out, having decent (coughs) web video options, in particular streaming. The goal of that project originally was to allow students to review material from a lecture anytime, anywhere. Um, There were some studies done, um, and they did find, um, primarily by looking at usage statistics, that students were primarily using it as a study tool. Um, more than half the students reported better understanding and they liked the self-paced learning. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the challenges there were some issues on the part of instructors. Some were concerned about attendance students not going to their classes um, because the video was available. Um, in reality, that wasn't such a big deal. The biggest places where it was a concern was the eight o'clock classes, not surprising. Um, and um, then there were some who didn't want to be webcast because they were concerned about intellectual property. Um, on the part of students, um, the students, not surprisingly, wanted the ability to get to specific content. Theme comes up again and again. This is just the interface from Bibs at the time. Um, beginning of this decade, those threads started to come together. Um, so Bibs became um, webcast Berkeley as it moved to. Our media services organization, our media services organization merged with, merged with our instructional technology organization and became ETS. So that's the organization that me and my colleagues are part of now. So here we finally had, you know, these kind of two different threads We're now, um, you know, different, still different groups, different staff, but we're all at least under the same umbrella. Um, we came even closer together um, between 2003 and 2005 when we adopted. Sakai um, as an open source collaboration and learning environment, and at the same time we added significant development resources um, because we were going to start building tools for Sakai, and in addition we brought um, in an interaction designer who kind of introduced the user-centered design process to our organization. And so now we're at a point where we're saying, okay, so can we build a Sakai tool that will enable video to be used to improve teaching and learning? (coughs) Um, a few words about user-centered design, and it's, you know, a hard thing to talk about in a few years, few words, maybe a few years. Um, so um, basically the focus is on the users and fully understanding the users and what their goals are and what they need to do before you even get to design. And I'll say a few words about some of those specific processes that we followed. Um, but a big part of understanding the user is understanding their pain points. So we did some initial research. Um, Obi helped me at the time with this. We <laughs> went talked with instructors. We did surveys. Um, and so this is a very high level. What, you know, what were the pain points? Well, for the instructors who were not the ones involved in the webcast program, their pain points were still the technical. You know, it's just too much work. It's burdensome to get that video up. The webcast um, instructors still had some concerns regarding attendance, and that was really the only thing that we saw repeated in terms of their problems. For students, um, they um, one of the things that was repeated was they didn't have control over what they saw. The the camera was on the student I mean, excuse me, on the instructor when they really wanted it on the board or vice versa. They couldn't see the powerpoints clearly, things like that. And then still, again, we find this repeated. They had difficulty finding specific content. Um, and when we looked at what these pain points were, we said, you know, we can't, in terms of building a tool, we can't address the instructor pain points terribly well. Um, and in terms of the student pain points, um, there were things that we could do And the organization has moved to um, doing a better job, making sure the students could see what they wanted to see. But we were going to focus on this aspect of difficulty finding specific content. So from there, we created our problem statement, um, which was a very valuable thing to do, especially in terms of getting stakeholder buy-in, sponsor buy-in, um, and making sure everybody was on the same page. And basically what we said was that, you know, nothing mind-boggling, but, you know, we have this problem where we have students who want to um, who want to take an intentional approach to working with this video, to studying with it. Um, they have good techniques. You know, we watch students you know, work with text, they know how to highlight things, they know how to bookmark things, they can get back to them. Um, But video is so opaque, it's hard to get into the specific parts that you want. Our solution, and it's probably reminiscent of the projects we've seen already, are to provide tools that enable students to mark points in time in video and find points for purposes of review, reflection, study, and completing assignments. Um, and we didn't at this point say specifically what we were looking for. We had you know looked at a range of tools and, and had a sense that there wasn't anything specific we needed. so um, now we're at a point where we're saying, well, this problem of opaqueness is particularly acute for webcast students. you know students using video all over the board are having problems with this opaqueness, but the students using our lecture webcasts were having a problem because it's really long form and they're You know, looking at them several times a week, and there's a lot of media there. And at the same time, we were talking about growing our webcast program. So, so now we're at this point where we say, okay, what we're doing is we're building tools for Sakai that will help students more actively use Webcast Berkeley as a study tool. Um, So, just a little bit about the user-centered design process we went through. You know, once we had reached that point, we continued doing user research, um, really observing students as they were working with the webcast video. Um, We tried to model what we had learned via personas and activity diagrams and moved on to requirements definition and got to the point um, where we had a conceptual framework design, which is really kind of a high-level, sketchy design, but it has all the components that we needed. Um, Just, just show you one of the artifacts. Um, This is our primary persona. Lisa, Um, the idea with creating personas is to... um, to develop um an archetype, somebody who can represent all the research that we've gathered, um, not a stereotype, that's a really important distinction. Um, and somebody who, if we meet her needs, we're going to be m- meeting the needs of others. So um, I guess I'm not going to spend too much time with her, and this is a high level um, view of her anyways, but I can show anybody more later if they want. Um, so we had to stop at that point. Um, We didn't have the resources to continue to build the tool. That was about a year ago. Um, And so now I'm going to kind of talk about some of the tensions. And the first one um, is, you know, we have a strong desire in our department to improve teaching and learning with new tools. But we also really have to deal with maintaining our existing mission-critical services. And so that's why um, we don't have resources put on this project, um, on the teaching and learning aspect of this project just yet. We're dealing with a lot of the infrastructure issues. Um, I'm going to just go through these pretty quickly and if people want to comment on them afterwards, um, they can. Um, what we're not doing um, with this kind of support for webcast is addressing um, or promoting any specific educational approaches. Um, we're building a more generalizable architecture. Um, one of the things that um, was a tension for me at the beginning and I'm kind of coming to terms with it, with, with it more um, with this, this whole concept of user-centered design, um, you're really looking to figure out how you can um, reduce work for the user, make them work less hard to get to their goal. Um, and if you're interested in active learning in a way, what you want students to do is work harder. You want them to you know, put the effort into reflecting, interacting with the material, etc. cetera. Um, and another way to say that is you know, sometimes the student goals are not the same as the instructor goals. So, um, and I put instructor in quotes um, because they're kind of all our goals. We all want the students to um, work harder. Um, some of the things that's come up for me a lot at this conference is how much information students can have um, and yet how little time they have to really access that material. And we know students these days are capable of an amazing amount of multitasking, but I still have concerns you know, based on the research that we did that um, Lisa is not going to spend a whole lot of time working with webcast because she wants to get off a of webcast and go over to Facebook or Flickr or you know what other whatever other um, things that she wants to do with her personal time um, issues of shared sense making versus personal sense making um, uh, this top one um, back to that whole issue of attendance well if you have um, if you're concerned with attendance issues, maybe you should be making your class more interactive. But once classes become far more interactive, then you have video that's far less useful in terms of watching it as watching it as a lecture. Um, and related to that is meeting the needs of our students. So again, you know, if we want our classes to be more interactive, is it really going to meet the needs of our worldwide audience in terms of? being able to see what's going on in a classroom where there's lots of different um, things happening. Um, and I think I will just end with, um, this is a little bit long. This is from an article written by Charles Kearns from um, Stanford. Um, He wrote it in 2002 when he was the Educational Technology Manager for the Open Knowledge Initiative at Stanford. but it says a lot about you know, where we can be moving, and I hope we move in this direction at the same time that we continue to um, really know what our users want and need. I think i stop there.